All right, I'm, I'm actually really excited for today's video. This has been, this is one of those ones that's been like a mountain of work to prepare, but um, that's what makes me excited about sharing it with you. It'll be a long teaching today, but we're going deep, very deep on the topic of whether husbands are actually the head of their wives. Like, is that a biblical idea? Is that really what scripture's saying? I mean, to give you like a brief overview for today's video, um, the Bible clearly says that men are the head of their wives. That I mean, it says this very clearly, like nobody can really debate this, but many egalitarians will take a different you know, tactic. And what they'll say is that we've misunderstood what that word means. And so when the Bible says head or kephale in Greek, that it means something very different than what most people today think it means. Now, here's why this matters. I, I want to lay out how important this is, how this, even though we're in this women in ministry series, this is part eight in the series. There's a link below to the whole playlist. Even though we're we're in this women in ministry series, yes, we have to talk about marriage. It's because if you hold egalitarian views consistently, I think that you will have to say that husbands are not the leaders in the home. They're not the head of their wives in the sense that typically people think of that word and that there isn't any sort of authority invested in the husband that is unequal to that which is given to the wife in every regard. And so you you see this among many egalitarians, but a lot of people, when they talk about this issue of women in ministry, they say things that would mean the removal of authority structures in marriage, but they they don't talk about marriage. In other words, they're talking about something that affects some people, church leadership, and it radically affects most people because it talks about marriage, but they won't talk about the marriage part. They just won't, won't address it. I'm going to address it. We need to get into it. This stuff actually really matters. So um, egalitarians, I use that word a lot in this series, right? Egalitarians, they basically say that women should be affirmed in any and every ministry role, right? But many of them say something much bigger than that. They go on to say, I would say the majority, at least that I've seen and read and heard, the majority will go on to say that there is no role for the husband having an unequal authority relationship with his wife. They'll, they'll usually go on to say that's oppressive and it's, it's, it's actually immoral, so it's like either it's biblical or it's immoral. These are like our two options here we've got. So this is huge. It impacts marriages around the world in deep ways. Most people will never try to be a pastor, but most people will try to get married. And it affects that marriage in huge, huge ways. Is the husband shirking his responsibility by not leading for his family? Or is he actually being oppressive by trying to be that guy who's the leader? Like, what? which one is it? Like, what's the biblical view here? So so we enter into today's debate. Today's debate focuses on one specific thing. Let me show you guys. I'll put it on your screen. I'm going to put tons of stuff on the screen. I'm going to give you tons of data, tons of research, lots of quote from quotes from you know Greek lexicons and scholars and stuff like that. But it should all be accessible. It should all be easy to understand. Um, I just I think you're intelligent. You just don't specialize in this area, so you don't need it to be dumbed down. You just need it to be made accessible. And that's the goal of my channel is to make things accessible without dumbing it down. Um, Okay, so the verse I want to show you is 1 Corinthians eleven three. This verse is where um, this verse is where Paul clearly says that a husband is the head of his wife. Right, the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. There's a debate here whether it's saying the head of wives are their husbands or if it's the head of women is men. But it, obviously, if it applies to women and men in general, it applies to marriage also. It, it, inevitably, you have to include marriage in this. Ephesians 5.23, it says the husband is the head of the wife. And then it gives a parallel, as also Christ is the head of the church. Okay, so here we've got husband, wife, Christ, church. Headship is definitely there. 
So that's not debated. People aren't debating that, right? According to the Bible, husbands are clearly the heads of their wives. The part that's debated and what we're going to focus on in this particular um, video today for the Women in Ministry series, part eight, again, the link's below for the whole series. You can check it out. Even my notes are available. You can read them right now while I'm teaching. You could read along. My notes are in a link down below in the video description. Um, so you can check all that out with tons of footnotes and extra stuff that I don't even have time to talk about. So today's debate, um, according to the Bible, uh, according to egalitarians, the Bible, when it says that a husband is the head of his wife, the word only means source. And it does not imply anything about authority. That's important, two claims. It means source or something like that. And it does not mean anything like authority. That's the egalitarian claim. Then the complementarians, the side or the patriarchalists, the sides who will take the more traditional view that church has always kind of had throughout time, they say it does imply authority. The, the word for head here, kephale, it does imply authority. And whether or not includes the meaning of source. Actually, they don't deny that it can mean source. What they're saying is it includes authority. So you get the idea. The, the debate here is does it include authority or not? That's the real debate. So before we get into this whole detail, I, I, all this stuff in detail, I'm going to give you a quick overview of how today's video is going to be in just four sections. So I like giving, telling you what I'm going to tell you, and then I tell you. <laughs> um, so before I do that, though, I just want to have an invitation that I put out there. I talk about a lot of scholars. I talk about uh, Linda Belleville and Philip Payne. And um, I mean, you name it, there's like a number of scholars. I'll bring up a bunch of names of scholars here. If any, this is an invitation to those scholars in particular. If I've offered criticism or pushback against your work, nothing personal is involved. It might feel that way. It often does when someone who has a bit of a reach suddenly speaks about your private or it's not really private, it's your public work, but it suddenly has a spotlight on it. It can feel kind of uncomfortable, but I'm open to you reaching out to me privately for discussion, or if you publish or print something or, or put a video out that's meant to refute me, I will watch it while I'm doing this series. I can't promise I'm going to be accessible for the rest of my life. I have another series to do after this. But right now, if you want to offer pushback, please do it within the next few weeks, within the next month or so, if possible, if it works for you. You don't have to. I'm just telling you, I will definitely give real attention to any criticisms you offer. You can also send them through BibleThinker.org, my website. You can send it get contact with us and then you can send and you know tell them hey i'm a scholar like don't lie <laughs> but if you're really a scholar who's who's really studied in this area and you want to give me pushback i really would like to read it now if i'm if i'm wrong i want to know it love to see that pushback okay let's uh walk through the four things there, there are four things we'll do in today's video specifically there's four ways that egalitarians will support their case that kefale that a husband being the head of his wife it does not imply authority at all and the first one is, let's make sure if I've done this right. Uh, look, new software, new, didn't do lots of new things over here recently because of uh, software issues, but um, the medical argument. The first one is the medical argument. So the common, according to them, this is the case. The common Greek medical thinking of the time, what the Romans and stuff thought, was that the function of the head or the brain did not include the idea that the head is telling the body what to do. The body doesn't, isn't controlled by the head. They didn't believe that. That wasn't the common belief. They thought instead that the heart did that. So when Paul uses a metaphor, like the husband is the head of his wife, he's not talking about authority because they didn't think the head had authority. He's talking about how the husband, the husband is the source of the wife in, in relation to, say, Adam and Eve. Adam, Eve was made from Adam, so she was sourced from Adam. So husband is metaphorically the source of his wife. That's the medical argument. We'll go over all these in detail. The second one is going to be the church history argument. Uh, the church history argument is, and I'm just going to be really brief. This one will be quick. Um, and I might, 
I think I'm doing these in this order. We'll see. Uh, this one will be brief, but basically there's there's one particular scholar, Kathleen Kroger, who says that Chrysostom, a church father, he kind of shows us that kephale, that head, doesn't mean authority. And she offers a quote um, specifically from Chrysostom that is that is something we should examine. So basically the, the statement is, hey, look, I can show a source in church history that show, that proves he wasn't thinking that headship meant authority. So that's important, um, and it's also not true. Number three, the third one is the Bible study argument. Now, the Bible study argument is that Paul, in the direct context of where he talks about 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians, when he talks about a husband being the head, he is, he is not meaning to imply authority at all. When you look at the context, if I'm egalitarian, I'd say, he means to say that the man is the source of the woman, as in Eve was created from Adam, and it doesn't say anything in those contexts. When you look at it, it doesn't say anything there about the man having authority over the woman or over his wife or the wife submitting to him because he's the head. That's not in those contexts at all. That's a very bold claim, and it's valid. Like, if if that statement's true, then why are we reading authority into headship? We'll examine that as well. And the final one will be the Greek argument, and this is the biggest one. This is where the heavy hitting comes in, and what others have called the battle of the lexicons takes place. <laughs> Did you know this? There's all these there's all these like debates that go on in the scholarly world that we don't even know about, right? The battle of the lexicons, which I'll explain in detail, um, but the Greek argument is, hey, kephale in the Greek, it means source. It does not mean authority. And they'll say Greek resources prove this, and it's overwhelmingly obvious. And so this has just been translated. In fact, many will go on to say that the Bible was translated to imply authority because of privileged, male privileged um, people trying to control their their um, their systemic powers and stuff like that. I laugh because it's not true, because this is not true, but it, what it is is this statement about the Greek, it leads into then the pejorative stuff about motives, or we're going after their motives. I saw, saw this on Twitter, someone who, I don't know if they were talking about me or not, was a scholar, and they were just saying something along the lines of like, these white privileged, when you read a, crit a critique of my work by a white privileged male, and I thought, this, these are these are this, these are the conversations you you can't even have with people anymore if those sort of claims are coming out. We're talking about facts, and then they res respond with you being white and privileged and male. It we're, oh, I, I was never basing my argument on anything about me. So we're going to go into the first one: medical claims. All right, so here we go. Digging deep today, women in ministry series. I'm glad you guys are here. I expect lower audience numbers. Every single time I do this, except the head covering video, I think everyone's going to want, want to watch that. That comes in two videos. But I don't care. This is not a pop-level treatment. We're going deep on these topics, and you're coming with me. Um, because it's only when you go deep that you see that, to be honest, these egalitarian claims that on the, on the surface looked really good had serious, serious problems with them. And if you don't dig deep, you will never find that out. You will just think, well, scholars disagree. Who am I to say, you know, I'm okay with both sides because, you know, you can make a case for both sides. This is what I've heard people say because they didn't dig deep. They didn't go deep enough. When I first read Egalitarians, I thought their stuff was solid. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say I thought it was solid, but I thought it was like at least enough to give me pause. Wow, is that right? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. All these areas. And then when I start checking footnotes and reading primary sources and reading the other scholars who are responding and then looking at the whole debate, I realize, oh, this is a house of cards. Um, so I say that now. That's not how I started my research. I didn't think it was a house of cards. I thought it was much more solid. The research has convinced me that. 
But I'm not, I don't want you to take my summary. I want you to walk through the evidence with me and come up with your own. So here we go. Let's talk about medical, medical claims. So um, Re Rebecca Grotheis has claimed this in her book. She's the author of Good News for Women. And I'll let you, I'll put it in her words. This is the medical claim. So that's her book, Good News for Women, Rebecca Grotheis. I'll quote her as well a little bit later, um, egalitarian scholar. So um, since, who since has passed and gone on to be with the Lord. She's, she's my sister in Christ, right? I'll get to see her and give her a hug in heaven. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, so these issues don't divide me, but th they matter. And I won't pretend that the disagreement is warranted if it's not. So here we go. Rebecca Grothei says, Nor was the head widely regarded as the seat of a person's reasoning and decision-making powers. She's talking here about what did normal people in, in who Paul was writing to in Ephesus and Corinth, what did they think about when you said, that's the head, what did they think the head did medically? So she goes on and says, rather, the heart was typically seen as governing the center of the body. The heart was typically, this was normal view, governing the center of the body, um, while the head was regarded as the source of life for the body. An understanding of the head as the supplier of life to the body is clearly seen, clearly in the sense of, in which head is used in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, and Colossians 2, 19, which describes Christ as the source of life, health, and strength for his body, the church. So this is important. We will come back to the contextual claims when I hit that part, the part three, I think it is, of the third objection they'll offer. Um, so we'll come back to those, but note this. In her work, there is no footnote offered here. This is a really strong historical claim. Normal people in ancient Rome they thought head, source of life, heart, governs the body. That's the normal view. There's no footnote offered to support it. I can't check her work. I don't know where she got this from. Um, but when I do check the work of others, I find that they usually get it. At least a lot of them quote a guy named Stephen Bedale. Now, Bedale wrote an article in 1954, a short little four-page article. And this is kind of where this started to come from, this idea of what Kephale means when Paul talks about the head. So Bedale says that using the head as a metaphor for one who has authority, quote, would be unintelligible to St. Paul or his readers. In St. Paul's day, according to popular, popular psychology, both Greek and Hebrew, a man reasoned and purposed not with his head, but with his heart. Now this is on page four in Stephen's paper, which I think I have linked below as well as you can find it in my uh, in my notes which you can get for free down below um, so you can read it for yourself it, it, it's a very short paper it's like five pages long um, so Stephen Medale this is his the meaning of Kephale in the Pauline epistles work now let me share another egalitarian claim who makes makes the same claim now this is where it sounds convincing you're like wow I mean if that's if they thought the heart controlled the life and and the, you know the actions and the head just supplied life then when Paul says a husband is the head he's just saying they're like He's either a provider or it's about Adam being the source of Eve. That makes a lot of sense, if it's true. Philip Payne, another egalitarian scholar, says, Modern science regards the brain as the control center of the body and so reinforces the metaphorical use of head for leader. But this was not the consensus in ancient Greek thought. Although some medical writers argued that the brain is the seat of cognition, Plato moved the command center to the heart. And then he quotes Plato here. So you can see how important this is, right? Like at least, if you're like me, when you're, I started by reading egalitarian claims, I go, well, that's really significant. Boy, I was getting like, here's me, right? I'm complimentary. I'm reading their stuff and I'm like, boy, I'm on the fence now. 
boy, I'm really on the fence and kind of want to be egalitarian. I kind of wanted to be for whatever reasons. But as I started really vetting these things, I not only came back, I came back even harder because as far as how strongly convinced I am because of the research I'm about to share with you. So um, in English, when you say someone is the head, you mean they're the leader. But maybe that didn't work in Greek. Maybe in Greek, they just when they said someone's the head, they just thought it wasn't. There was you're the source. You're the provider, or you're the source of life. That's what you are. You're not the leader. You're not. You're not making decisions for the body. That's what the heart does. So I, this is very interesting. Um, now let's examine the claims. Here's what happens when you go a layer deeper and you examine the claims. Philip Payne says Plato moved the command center. So the Plato passage that. Pain appeals to. I'll put it up on your screen here. Let's see. I got buttons I can push. Okay. This is the Plato passage. Now, it, it, it's a little bit, the, the language is a little bit strange, a little awkward to read, but you'll get it. Um, he's talking about the different, the different uh, pieces of the human body, right? So, as if to fence off two separate chambers for men and for women by placing the midriff between them as a screen. Then he talks about the issues we're concerned about. That part of the soul then, which partakes of courage and spirit, since it is a lover of victory, they planted more near to the head, between the midriff and neck, in order that it might hearken to the reason. So this is this is that part of the soul, the heart, it's getting close to the head. It's not where the head is, it's close to the head, <laughs> so that it can hearken to reason. And in conjunction therewith, he says, might forcibly subdue the tribe of, des of the desires whenever they should utterly refuse to yield willing obedience to the word of the command from the citadel of reason. Okay, that's a strange quote, I admit it. What's he saying? Short version. He's, he's saying that the heart has been placed up near the head so that it's forced to listen to the citadel of reason so that its passions won't take over. In other words, the head controls, not the heart. That's the opposite of what Philip Payne said. If you read on a few sentences, and I've got a link to this, you could read Plato's work yourself, I have a link to it below. If you read on a few sentences, you'll see that the heart is cooled by the lungs, according to Plato. He's got weird science, but this is what he thinks. It's cooled by the lungs so that when its passions rise, it will still be subservient to reason, which Plato elsewhere says happens in the head. So Philip Payne, if I, if I put this back up, his claim, and, and you've seen many egalitarian claims, everybody knew this. The heart controls the body. The head's just the source of, of, of life and nutrients and stuff like that. But, but this isn't true. right? He says Plato moved the command center to the heart, but Plato didn't do this. And even in the exact footnote, and Philippine's a well-known, respected egalitarian scholar, even in his exact footnote, Plato doesn't do that. Plato does the opposite of that and says that the heart is near the head, so it will be subservient to the head, so that it won't take over and control. Because Plato's like, Passions come from the heart, but the decisions come from up here where reason takes place. That's pretty interesting. There's another Plato quote I can put up on screen. And um, in this one, he says, The divine revolutions, which are two, they bound within a sphere-shaped body in imitation of the spherical form of the all, which body we now call the head. It being the most divine part, and what does the head do? He says, reigning over all the parts within us, to it, the gods delivered over the whole body they had assembled to be its servant. The body is the servant of the head. Do you catch that? The body is the servant of the head. 
That means it does what the head says. The, 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 the head reigns over. This is Plato. Now, it seems to me that probably most scholars who look into Plato know this, but only egalitarian scholars seem to not know what Plato really says about these issues. Why? Because there's these sort of misconceptions floating around egalitarian scholarship as they quote each other. As they quote things like Stephen Bedale, who wrote this little short five-page article like 70 years ago. So this is this is significant. Um, let me see here. The um, okay, so Payne's example backfires. Philip Payne's example backfires. If Plato influenced first-century views, which he probably had some influence there, then people in the first century who thought like Plato, they thought the head controlled the body, not the heart. It's the opposite. So another claim. This isn't just about Plato. Philip Payne also claims that in Paul's day, um, it was it was common knowledge. Like, not just Plato thought that the heart controlled, which he didn't, but that most people, the average person, thought that the heart controlled the body and not the head. Let's go to that. He says, Philip Payne says, in um, the ancient Greek world, exemplified by Paul's use of heart, commonly believed that the heart, not the head, was the center of the emotions and spirit, the central governing place of the body. Again, you saw the same quote from Rebecca Grotheis and others. This is pretty important. So let's look at ancient thought on these issues. Like we could actually examine this claim, some ancient thought on these issues. So Hippocrates, who's considered the father of medicine. Now he's an old guy, like old, much older than the first century, but he was still influential in the first century, just like he's still influential today, actually, even though he had a bunch of weird ideas. Um, but at least he was trying. <laughs> um, so in fact, the Hippocratic Oath is named after this guy. So Hippocrates, let's look at him. Um, and you can you can check this out in fact, I footnoted this article. I just want to put the footnote up. This is Clinton Arnold, who did a fantastic survey of ancient thought on the, the function of the head and whether it controlled the body or not. He provides lots of evidence for this. Really good job. And it's in exactly the resource that's on your screen. If you have Logos, if you have a nice version of Logos, you might already have it in your, in your, uh, in your stuff. Just search for the title of the article there. That was something that I, I wanted to just point out for those who want more research on this. But let me take you to Hippocrates. What did he actually say? Hippocrates wrote, neither the heart nor the diaphragm has any share of intelligence, but it is the brain which is the cause of all the things I've mentioned. That's the intelligence, the reason, the, 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 the action taking, the will. It's caused by those things. So Plato thought that. Hippocrates thought that. What about Galen? Galen is another one that's brought up by Philip Payne. So Philip Payne says in his book, the debate continued about what controlled the body, head, heart, until Galen reasserted the very early primacy of the liver in the second century AD. This turns out also to be a factually false claim. The thing is, um, I'm not just trying to nitpick, the, these things are important because we're trying to base our interpretation of scripture off of factually false claims about history that most humans have no ability or time to research. So they read Philip Payne's book and be totally convinced and not know that there was a lot of significant issues in it. Um, it's really disappointing. Everybody makes mistakes, okay? But these are this is too many mistakes that are too avoidable from a scholar that's causing other people to make a lot of mistakes. So Philip Payne says that it was Gallen who moved it to the liver, and that and that Gallen thought that the liver down here rules rules cognition and decision making. Is that true? Did Gallen really think this? Um, now, note this, that there does seem to be confusion about Gallon's views because he thought the liver was really important. That's true. I know this is stuff you probably don't care that much about. <laughs> but Gallon did think the liver was very, very important and very special. 
But to say that he thinks everything happens from the liver is to misunderstand Gallen's views. So let's go to that. There is a neurologist who, a professor of neurology, Vanderbilt University, a guy named Frank Freeman, wrote an article called Gallen's Ideas on Neurological Function. He acknowledges in the article that a lot of people get Gallen wrong. They're confused about Gallen. But he does say that in Gallen's ideas, and you can see the highlighted section there, that he determined that the brain, not the chest, was the site of the rational power that controls human behavior. So Gallen, like Plato, like Hippocrates, he also agrees that the brain, the, the head, is the thing that's controlling the body. That's a natural understanding. These are all influential figures. The Gallen comes after. So we have people before. We have people after. Um, let me give you a quote from... Um, from this paper. It says, unlike some of his predecessors, Gallen concluded that the brain controlled cognition and willed action. Gallen considered that common sense, cognition, and memory were functions of the brain. Personality and emotion were not generated by the brain, but rather by the body as a whole, or perhaps by the heart and liver. Gallen's studies of respiration and of the recurrent Laryngeal nerve solidified the knowledge that the brain, not the chest, was the site of the rational power that guides human behavior. This doctrine has continued from Gallen's time to this present. So, so Philip Payne is definitely wrong about Gallen. But let's read on because Gallen says something else very interesting. Here's a quote from Gallen. Nor is it necessary that because the brain, like the great king, dwells in the head as in an acropolis, for that reason the ruling part of the soul is in the brain. Or because the brain has the senses stationed around it like bodyguards. Or even if one should go so far as to say that, that uh, as heaven is to the whole universe, so the head is to man. That therefore is the former, the, as the former is the home of the gods, so the brain is the home of the rational faculty. Now Gallen says something else that goes even further than this. Because Gallen is a guy who comes a little bit after the time of Paul. But he comments not just on what he thinks, being sort of the medical guy. Maybe he's got a unique view, right? Although we see it in Plato and Hippocrates. But he comments on what normal people thought at his time. Now, who knows better what normal people thought than someone who was alive at the time? So here's a quote from Gallen that's super interesting. He says, To most people, the head seems to have been formed on account of the encephalon and for that reason to contain all the senses like servants and guards of a great king. So the senses, the ears and the mouth and the, and the taste and the nose and the eyes, they all are right there in the head because the head is the king, the one who's ruling, the one who's making the decisions about what to do in response to all this input. So Gallen's not just saying he thinks this. He's saying most people think this. What was the common view in Paul's time? Well, here's at least what Gallen thought the common view was in his time. What about closer to Paul we can get closer. There's a guy named Rufus. <laughs> Rufus of Ephesus. Remember, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that the husband's the head of his wife. Okay, keep that in mind. In addition to that, there's a guy who lived in Ephesus in about 100 AD, shortly after Paul wrote to Ephesus. And he comments on this stuff as well. So this is Rufus of Ephesus. He says, The processes springing from the brain are the sensory and voluntary nerves through which feeling and voluntary movements, in fact, all the activities of the body are carried out. Notice the word voluntary there. So he's saying when, uh, when the body's doing things intentionally, voluntarily, I choose to grab this, I choose to run here, I choose to yell this, that's the brain that's controlling that. That's Rufus where? 
Ephesus. So when Paul writes to Ephesus, it seems like we have really good reason to think when he says husband's the head of his wife, there's at least, if there's a medical connection, if there's a medical understanding of the function of a head to the body, that they're thinking that that means the husband has some kind of authority. Clinton Arnold comments on this, and he says, Rufus's opinion's important because he taught anatomy and physiology at the end of the first century CE. Such opinion was surely well known in Asia Minor, which was famous in antiquity for its advanced medical science and excellent medical schools, Pergamum, Smyrna, Ephesus, Miletus, Tralles, Laodicea, and elsewhere. The places that Paul's writing to. But there's more. There's another very contemporary person named Philo. This is a Jewish guy. Prolific Jewish writer, very, very famous. And he was around, I mean, he was alive like when Jesus was alive. So Philo is like super relevant to the stuff we're reading about. He's not Christian. He doesn't represent Christianity, but he might represent popular thinking, at least in some areas. So what did Philo say about the head? Philo, a contemporary of Paul and a very influential Jewish writer, said the head was the, quote, master limb of the members, quote, the first, highest, and principal part, the thief. That was the tuck bone on my part. The chief. That's <laughs> not the thief. The chief. The head like the citadel of a, of a king has its occupant in the sovereign mind. He also calls it the dwelling place of reason. Okay, so clearly Philo thought, this thing's controlling the body. Then how did these egalitarian scholars all go, well, everybody knew that it was the heart, not the head. Well, they read like a five-page article from Bedale, then they echo it to each other, I don't know. It's selective usage of historical quotes, not careful proper usage. I, I hate to say it. I, I, th now, this sounds like personal insults, but I'm really only talking about the work. I'm not talking about anybody individually. I would embrace them as my brothers and sisters, and I would love them. But just like your real brothers and sisters, sometimes they're just really wrong on something, and it's, a, it's okay to say that. Just like if I'm, if I'm wrong. You can be my brother and sister, make a video telling everybody how wrong I am on something. That's okay. <laughs> um, and if I am wrong, you're doing me and everybody else a kindness. Let's look then at Philip Payne. So Philip Payne says Aristotle held that the heart was, was um, the seat of control and intelligence. Okay, Philip Payne says that about Aristotle, and that is true. Aristotle thought that. That is true, but that does not mean it was the common view of the time. We have Hippocrates, and we have Philo in the first century. We have Rufus of Ephesus, who taught to the people in the region Paul is actually writing to, and he taught them very clearly the opposite of that. And so we have all these other things that show that probably, and even Gallen comments on what the common view was in his time, in other words, conclusions, medical views of the head from the time of Paul the Apostle do more to support the idea that when, when Paul says a husband is the head, he probably does have authority there. That's probably what he means. Medical views backfire against the egalitarian. So why are they being used? I think it's because it's obscure data that nobody knows. Normal people like you, you don't know what medical people thought in first century Ephesus. So when someone says, well, medically this, it's like, you just go, okay, I guess I accept that. You, you have a PhD. What do I do? I think that this is, this is what's happening a lot with egalitarian scholarship, I feel. So um, the, uh, the most helpful article I read was from Clinton Arnold. I showed you the footnote of it before, um, and I do recommend you, uh, you check it out. Um, it's, it's also found in this book. The article is a chapter in this book, Lord of, Jesus of Nazareth, Lord in Christ. Pretty... I don't know the whole book, but certainly the article was very, very helpful. So now let's move on to part two. This is the second section. We're going to, we're moving on from medical claims, which now appear to support 
complementarian or patriarchal views. Now we're looking at contextual claims. This is the idea that Paul's, I'll, I guess I'll do church history next, that Paul's particular use of kephale head, he does not include authority, include the idea of authority. So sure, maybe head was, you know, medically there, but when Paul uses it, he's using it in a very special way, and you can see it in the context. So let me share with you some quotes. Uh, here's a quote from an egalitarian source that talks about this. Okay, this, this comes from Ronald Pierce and Elizabeth Kay, who are both egalitarian authors who work together in uh, the Discovering Biblical Equality book, writing one of the chapters. And in fact, Ronald Pierce is like one of the big, big dogs who actually organized all the egalitarians to write the book, Discovering Biblical Equality, the big, super fat, considered to be like one of the more cutting edge representative works for egalitarian scholarship and thought. So they say, though Kephale, head, in the body, in the head body metaphor, may connote authority over or source of provision, could be either of those. In the larger context of both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul only reinforces the idea of source or provision for husbands to wives. So they're like, hey, we acknowledge that head, unlike some, they'll, they'll acknowledge it, head could mean authority over. But when you look at Paul's use of head, he doesn't mean it that way. He's using head in a sense that only, only talks about source of provision. So, so there's no authority indicated there, regardless of what your view of, say, the medical issues are. Okay, well, let's just consider these things. Just note first that they acknowledge that it can imply authority over. Some don't acknowledge that, um, that it's a like real possibility. Also note the either-or presumption. This happens a, an awful lot in this debate. There's these either-or presumptions. Is it like, is it this or is it that? And so if I was to ask Paul, Paul, when you say that a husband is the head of his wife, do you mean he's a source of provision for her? Or do you not mean that? And do you mean that he's an authority? Which one is it? Would Paul perhaps respond by saying, why do you think it's only one? If we just assume it can only mean one of those things, if they thought the head did both of those things, then maybe that the word is being used to imply both of those things. It's still one meaning for the word. It's not like we're importing what they call totality transfer, where, where it's a, an error where you grab every meaning of a word and pull it over. That's not what's happening here. So both are possible at the same time. If head was seen to do both, uh, though I personally kind of doubt the idea of source, the source meaning for head, I, I think is, I'm skeptical, but I'm not arguing for that here today because I think that it can mean source and authority. I don't see a problem with that. But they gave several passages to support this idea. So here's the here now we get into the Bible study stuff. This is this is more like in my normal wheelhouse, what I really love to do, verse by verse study. Someone says something about the Bible and you open it up and you read it in context and you're like, that's right, or no, nah, that's wrong. They missed something. Anybody can do this. You don't need no degrees. You just need to pay attention and use a Bible. So they give five passages. So is it true that Paul does not reinforce authority of a husband over over, over his wife? in these contexts, in these five passages. Let's look at the passages. Well, the power of just looking at the passage, it's amazing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Here's their first one. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. This is about Jesus, right? But this is Paul's use of head in Ephesians. And this is one of the things, they verses they bring up. 
well, clearly this is all about authority. Jesus is raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of, of the Father. That's a royal place of authority over, over creation. He's far above all what? Power and might and dominion. Every name that's named. He has total authority. Everything's under his feet. And he gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now, there is a Galatarian pushback to this. They go, well, Mike, that's not what Paul meant. Um, he's head only in relationship to the church, not in relationship to all those. So yeah, he has authority, authority, authority. That's all those verses right there. But when it comes to the section where it talks about Paul, or Paul talks about Jesus being head, he's head over the church. So we, what, what Paul is saying is, Paul, Jesus is authority over all creation, but he's a head specifically to the church. There it's talking about him being the source of provision, right? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's filling us and all that. Here's the problem with that view and why it doesn't work. God didn't make Jesus the head of the church purely. It says he gave him to be head over all to the church. To the church, we recognize him as head, but his headship is over all. And it's all the things Paul already talked about. So he's head over principalities and powers and dominions and, and the, every ruler and everything. So Jesus' headship in Ephesians 1 is absolutely about authority. It may also include supply to the church because Ephesians goes on and talks about us being part of his body and how you know, there's nutrients that flow, right? So there is that, um, that connection too. It's not either or, but clearly authority is meant in the first passage where they say authority is not meant, okay? That's important, or at least they imply that it, that, that it, that it supports their case. Let's go to the next one, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, this is speaking of us as Christians, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Here's that headship thing. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is a... a um, a great verse for the egalitarian position because it's clearly about nutrition and we're being joined it's relational and we're we're, we're getting supplied from christ uh, to minister to one another as well it's a beautiful idea this head body metaphor is a beautiful beautiful thing so i would say that yeah this passage i would agree with them it, it focuses on provision it does not mention anything about authority um but to not overreach we should say it doesn't exclude the possibility of authority with headship either it just talks about one thing and doesn't talk about another. And unless you have that either or fallacy, where if provision is mentioned, it means not authority. Unless you have that fallacy in your mind, then this just becomes a verse that doesn't actually do a whole lot for our discussion. So Ephesians 5, this verse actually was strangely ignored by the authors in their, in their verses where they say talk, Paul talks about head and body and metaphor and all that. Um, they just ignore Ephesians 5. But we have to read it. And we'll go over it in more detail in the future. But just for today's sake, what does Paul mean by head? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Now we know that the headship of Christ earlier was about his authority. We know here that wives are told to submit. Why? Because the husband's the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. Now there's... Now, here's where most pastors are going to spend the next 10 minutes all these caveats on. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking, and the husband's supposed to self-sacrificially love. Like, I'll get into all that stuff later. Um, for those who can't think these through things through carefully, like, this series is not for you. Like, if you're responding emotionally to facts, then I'm 
that my whole channel is not for you. <laughs> um, um, I care about you. I don't want, but I can't just derail the whole study and just give a thousand caveats of what I'm not saying every time I bring up an issue. It becomes impossible. So here, clearly, the the husband's the head of the wife, and that has to do with submission. Now we'll get into this later, where some egalitarians say, "Well, but we're to submit to one another." So wives submit to your husband, but the husband's supposed to submit to the wife too. We'll get into all that. That'll be next week. We'll get into those in, in detail. So don't think I'm skipping it. I just have, it's going to be a long video already as my mods, you, you will, you will see, you'll be tired by the end for sure. <laughs> so will I. Um, so they ignored this passage in their reference, um, Ronald Pearson and Kay, um, I can't remember her first name right now. Anyway, Pearson Kay ignored this in their first, in their, in their references of where Paul talks about headship. It expresses, expressly uses kephale in the context of husbands and wives. How can we ignore it? And they seem to dismiss it as irrelevant because it doesn't use the word body. But it's not the, it's not the head body metaphor. So the husband's the head of his wife, but the wife's not the body. But then it talks about Christ being the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. So the body metaphor is there as well. I know this gets a little complicated, but it's as though they feel they can ignore this passage because the word body is not expressly used toward wives. But husband-wife is parallel with Christ's church. He's the head. She's the, we don't know. But with the church, the passage expressly says he's the head and the church is the body. So what in this parallel, Paul's talking about the wife as though she's the body um, in this analogy. How do, we, how do we ignore that? That's so weird. Maybe because we don't like the implications of it. Or, I mean, that's one possibility. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 18 through 32. I'm not going to read the whole section. I'll just read verse 18. And here we go. Is the next one that they bring up. Um, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Jesus is the head of the body. The question is, is, is headship, does headship include authority in Paul's thinking here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this passage? He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Okay, well, when you're the firstborn, you're the beginning, this does imply authority in their, in their culture, that in all things, all things, he may have the preeminence. That's all about him, not just having decision-making authority, but having the respect that comes with it. So yeah, like it's, it's there. His preeminence, that word preeminent, if you look it up in a, 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 say, a really trustworthy Greek resource like BDAG, B-D-A-G, lexicon, it says to hold the highest rank in a group. The LSJ, the favorite lexicon of the Galatarians, says that this word preeminence, preeminence right, protuo, it's the chief men in a city. It could be the chief, the leader of the city, like the, the, the guy that's in charge. So Jesus in all things might have that. Clearly, clearly, the head body metaphor is meant to include authority in Paul's writings, uh, totally against what uh, Pearson K said in their quote. I'll put it up again. How did they say this? Here it is. Though kephale in the head-body metaphor may connote authority over or source of provision, in the larger context of both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul only reinforces the idea of source of provision for husbands to wives. Really? Not in my Bible. <laughs> okay, so um, this is what I see over and over again. This isn't a, an anomaly, as you'll see in this video, today's video. It's not an anomaly. This kind of like, what, what, how did that happen? That happens all the time, and, and it's very unfortunate. Um, I don't think people should say we have reason to disagree on this issue. I, the more I study it, the more I'm like, no, you have confusion that's caused by 
scholarly works that that um, focus on more on saying that um, complementarian views are evil and immoral than they do on actually providing careful, researched, and accurate representations of either Greek or history or scriptural context. And it's just, it's been my experience. I didn't expect to say this going in. I thought I would find much better stuff. So, um, what does Paul explicitly say? Let me restate that. Does Paul explicitly say that it relates to authority when he talks about husbands and wives in Ephesians 5? Let's look at this. This is a quote from uh, Ronald Pearson and Elizabeth Kay in, in page 115 of Discovering Biblical Equality, where they say, Moreover, he, Paul, calls husbands to love their wives self, uh, self, sacrificially, as Christ did for the church, again, standing kephale on its head. I don't know what they meant by that, but I mean, I get the basic idea. As head of his wife, the husband is commanded to love her, not to exercise leadership or authority over her, however benevolent that might be. Because this is a general, consistently held view amongst egalitarians, is that if the husband does have authority, it's inherently unloving, it's inherently um, immoral in some way, somehow wrong morally. And so they're like, he's told to love her, therefore it's implied he's not to exercise authority over her. Is that the case though? There's, here's problems with this view. I'll leave it on screen for a while so you can look at it. One, it's a false dichotomy. Loving people does not rule out the possibility of exercising leadership or authority over them. It doesn't. Jesus does this. He loves us and exercises authority over us. I don't know why this is a debate. <laughs> we see this in prior examples in the verses I already quoted where Jesus is both loving, caring for us, and exercising authority. And the same passage in Ephesians, the verses they're quoting, the verses they skipped, notice they start at 525 through 30. Well, let's just read the other side of it, 522, we'll read it again, through 24. What does it say? Moreover, um, or excuse me, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives let the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. I, I add the word subject. Some translations actually add the word subject, but it's obviously what? Be subject. In other words, there's this idea of like, I will yield. I will yield. This is considered highly offensive to many today. I think that offense is wrong. That offense is our moral compasses being damaged. And we need to realign them with the truth of God's word. We're the weirdos when we're offended by this. We're the weirdos when we think that there is no such thing as godly submission. There is only abuse. There is abuse, but not when you follow Ephesians 5. And it's not, it's not caused by submission. It's caused by misuse of, of, of power, misuse of authority, and even, and even failure to submit can be abusive as well in a sense. So, and that, that's going to be hugely offensive to people. I just think those people are, are not thinking clearly on these issues, and it wouldn't offend you. <laughs> I'm just burning all the bridges right now, but it wouldn't offend you if you thought more carefully about it and realized that um, power in and of itself is not inherently evil. Authority in and of itself is not inherently evil or bad. Just like Jesus has massive amounts of both, and there's nothing wrong with it. So... Um, the egalitarian rescue, of course, is that, well, submission is mutual, see verse 21, and I'll say, yes, generally we submit to one another. I'll cover this in detail where we'll talk about 
wives submitting to husbands, slaves to masters, children to parents, and we'll go through all that in uh, next time's video, the next video in this series. So let's talk about Lynn Kohick here now. Um, Lynn Kohick in Discovering Biblical Equality, she sees headship here as violate, to see headship here, uh, this is what she says, is to violate Paul's intention in metaphor. One of the claims that she makes, and we'll look at some more stuff from Lynn Kohick today, is hey, if you think when Paul says husband's the head, if you see headship meaning authority, you're violating Paul's intention in metaphor. She makes this claim, I see no footnote or support for that. It's just the statement that's made. It's the kind of thing that just echoes around. She also says kephale, the Greek word, which, quote, which typically refers to the physical head resting on the neck. And then goes on to say this. In Hebrew, Latin, and English, that's what it typically means. The head resting on the neck can be used metaphorically to indicate leader. That's in Hebrew, Latin, and English, but the Bible's not written in those languages, right? The Bible's written in Greek. So she says, it's difficult to make the case that it refers to leader in Greek, for we have almost no evidence of this. We will talk about this in detail, um, but there are actually tons of lexicons. We're gonna talk about that just a in just, well, maybe more than a minute, <laughs> a little bit, about the lexicon support, and there's been just misinformation about Greek lexicons and the meaning of the word kephale that's been out there that confuses a lot of people until you spend tons of hours digging really deep and you go, oh, okay, this is not really as up in the air or as one-sided for egalitarians as, as they might make it seem. So there's tons of evidence we'll see for this in the Greek lexicons and there, but it's also an either-or fallacy. She doesn't seem to acknowledge here or in the corresponding footnote in her work that it might mean both source and leader or source and authority. Now, few, this is something I've seen, few egalitarians interact with the possibility that Paul could be saying that a husband is both the source and the leader. It's, it's always a, a, a choice between the two. So then they work hard to try to like find a meaning of source in the word head, and they try to have it different ways they do that. But then they conclude, therefore, it doesn't mean leader. But, but this, is, this is obviously wrong. Let me go to uh, who I think is a fantastic source on this, Wayne Grudem. Absolutely a great source, no matter how much he's been maligned by some people in, for what for his work. Um, so this is actually what Lynn Coick says about Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, this is information overload, I know it, but uh, Wayne Grudem did a survey of 2,000 plus, over 2,000 examples of the use of kephale. And here's her summary of his survey. You'd think, oh, I could just dismiss his work after reading this. He examined over 2,000 examples of the term kephale in the ancient world and concluded that 2.1% of the time, it should be translated with the sense of leader or having authority over, including in the biblical text examples. I mean, that just sounds, I mean, Grudem's work seems that it's, it's very unlikely. Okay, it could mean leader, but 2.1% of the time, I mean, that's a really low chance that it ever means leader in the Bible, and Grudem even included those examples, so I, why would I listen to that? Her summary of Grudem's work involves like a, a, some statistical trickery. She says Grudem found 2.1% of uses in Greek to refer to authority, but that includes literal uses. Like one thing we can all agree on, Paul's not talking about a literal head. Usually, usually it's a literal head. When, when someone says kephale, they mean like literally your head. Paul doesn't mean that. So we can exclude those as even possible. When you exclude those, he found that 16.2 of metaphorical uses mean person of superior rank, ruler, or ruling part. It carries authority 16.2% of the time. 
but there's more, right? Um, that, that's important to examine here because it's not just a statistical thing. We don't just go 16%. Okay, so it's not super likely. Like that's not how language works. So head can be literal and it usually is. That's not the meaning in these passages. We all know it. It can also be metaphorical. When it's metaphorical, it has certain meanings. It can mean headlong, like falling headlong. He fell kephale. Okay, well, it doesn't mean that. That's metaphorical, but it doesn't mean that in Ephesians or Colossians or anything. It can be head in reference to the whole person. Like we're counting heads, but we mean counting people. Well, we know that metaphorical meaning's out. It could be head meaning extremity, right? The, the heads of a river it refers to the source or the mouth of a river. And so it's an extremity thing, but it doesn't, that's not what it means. Paul's not saying the husband is the extremity of his wife. <laughs> uh, no, it could mean prominent part. Okay, well, th that, that could be there, except then that would start to carry connotations of authority as well, probably. It could mean the conclusion of an argument when things come to a head. The, the argument comes to a head. That's, that's, but it, that's not it. And it can just mean authority, which seems to be the meaning here we have in Ephesians and Colossians. That, that's the result of Grudem's work, and you can check out his papers. I've got several linked below. When you rule out other possible meanings and you see the words like submission and be subject, be subject to in the context of headship in the New Testament, like it's obvious, it's convincing Paul means authority when he says a husband is the head of his wife. He does mean that. Not for abuse and all those caveats, like ob obviously. And I say obviously because you might be watching this video thinking like you have this really damaged image of the church because of your experiences or, but my vision of the church is based on our, our, our calling, not just based on whatever examples I've seen from people who say they're Christians. The biblical calling is for husbands to be the head of their wives, lovingly self-sacrificially leading with a measure of authority in that marriage. And that's something that's a good thing. So here's, here's the conclusion, right? Paul regularly uses head to imply authority, both in reference to Christ and husbands. The context seems abundantly clear. Even if it means source, it also means authority. That, those are my conclusions. So the, the context, the Bible study, you know, argument seems really, really strongly waiting complementarian or patriarchalist, one or the other, depending on how you define those. So the church history argument is the third one. This one will be real short because we're just going to look at one example from church history. This comes from Kathleen, uh, Catherine Kroger. I think I said Kathleen earlier. Sorry about that. Catherine Kroger, she is this, and this is why it's important. Okay, I'm not just picking random scholars. Like these are influential people I'm picking. I'm not picking some random self-published author on Amazon. Catherine Kroger is a leading egalitarian scholar. She's, she's considered one of the founders of the egalitarian scholarly movement, right? Um, she's also the founder of Christians for Biblical Equality, which is the CBE website that continually promotes egalitarian views and scholars and papers and books and writings. Like I, I spend time on that site because I'm trying to understand their views. Let me, oh, let me get you. There we go. Oh, and, uh, and then, and then, okay, I'm good. <laughs> Learning the new software. Um, so I stopped using XSplit for those who are into streaming. I stopped using XSplit because it's just too many technical things that we couldn't get past. And every time I did an update, it seemed like it was an issue. It worked great many times, but it was enough problems along the way that I finally decided to switch over. And um, I'm using vMix now, which is expensive, but is, and it takes a long time to prepare these streams. <laughs> it takes way longer to prepare. XSplit's way easier, but vMix seems more reliable. Okay. So far, I'll tell you, maybe I'll change my mind in a month. 
Um, so here, this is an article from Kathleen, Catherine Kroger on the CBE website. And the basic idea here, and she doesn't spell it out. Sometimes things are implied. They're not really made clear. So what seems implied in the article is there was an ancient church guy named Chrysostom, this church father dude. And he's reading the word kephale, and he knows Greek, and we should trust his judgment and at least at least consider it highly. I agree with I agree that we should consider it highly. And Chrysostom's weighing in against the idea that het kephale means authority. So he, he's quoted, but the quote is a serious problem. So let me first read what she says. For those listening, just get your like your perspective on it. Go, what would I think if I thought, if I just trusted this author and I thought, she says this, what would your conclusion be about Chrysostom? And then we're going to read Chrysostom's whole quote without the parts she cut out. This is, this is not, not cool. So she says, Catherine Kroger says, um, the commonly held anatomical view of antiquity, that the head was the source of the body's existence, led the foremost exegete of the early church to further metaphorical uses. Now, we, we notice we already talked about commonly held anatomical views of antiquity, but um, that's what she says here. So from the head, John Chrysostom said, the senses, quote, have their source and fount. In the head are the eyes both of the body and of the soul, dot, 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 dot. All the senses have their origin and source. Thence are sent forth the organs of speech, the power of seeing and of smelling and all touch, for thence is derived the root of the nerves and bones. So her basic point is, hey, it was commonly, you'd think this Chrysostom quote's just about the nature of the head. He's not really talking about anything else. It was commonly held that the head was the source. It was a source. It was a conduit of things, right? What Kroger didn't do, and this was back in 1990-something, like she published this article, then again in 2006, it goes up on the website here. It has been critiqued publicly by Wayne Grudem, who did a great job doing that. Kroger did not cite the two sentences before the Chrysostom quote, the two sentences after, or the two in the dot, 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 dot section. So we're going to read Chrysostom. Here he is. Kind of small print. Here's what it says. And look at Chrysostom. He's not only commenting on the nature of the head, but about the nature of husbands and wives. Thou art the head of the woman. Then let the head regulate the rest of the body. Dost not, dost thou not see that it is not so much above the rest of the body in situation as in forethought, directing like a steersman the whole of it? For in the head are the eyes of both the body and of the soul. Hence flows to them both the faculty of seeing and the power of directing and the rest of the body is appointed for service, but this, the head, is set to command. All the senses have thence their origin and their source. Thence are sent forth the organs of speech, the power of seeing and of smelling and, of all, and all touch. For thence is derived the root of the nerves and of the bones, seeing that thou not that it is superior in forethought more than in honor. So let us, he says, that that's a confusing sentence for us in modern English, but he's saying, don't think that the head's more honorable. It's just in a position of forethought, so it directs. Okay, so he says, so let us rule the women. Let us surpass them, not by seeking greater honor from them, but by their being more benefited by us. It seems to me that Chrysostom, whether you like him or not, was strongly complementarian, at least my understanding of complementarians. Husbands aren't more honorable. They're not better than their wives. 
they're not to seek for their own glory or their own honor. They're seek they're they're to seek to benefit the wife because they're in this position of leadership and an authority in the marriage. This is complementarian. He saw that the nature of the word head applied to this, not above honor, but but above in leadership. And this side note, Chrysostom comes up a lot in the debate between the Galatarians, and they often use him in very suspicious ways like this. This is the continual... This example of Kathleen Catherine Kroger's work that has been reproduced all the way up till 2006, still on the on the website there, and is quoted by others as well because she's a big influencer in this movement. It's so bad it hurts. Like you, anyway, I put it in front of you. You saw it for yourself. You can punch your own ceiling. I don't have to keep punching mine. All right, we're, we're going to move on. Um, but the bottom line for church history is that church history has pretty much always agreed that um, only. For elders, the, el the biblical elder position is only for men. Deacons, yes, women were deacons, but not elders. That, that That's church history's always pretty much always agreed, like huge wide agreement across great differences amongst in the church, including the idea of male headship, meaning authority in the home. This is something the church has all radically been in strong agreement on. So this is, if you're going to go to church history, you're going to have a hard time supporting egalitarian claims unless you do this with, with some funky stuff with dot, dot, dots. All right, let's go to the lexical claims. This is the last one. This is going to take a while. The lexical claims are particular. Um, this is the biggest part of the debate, the, lex the lexical claims. Let me read to you a quote from Lynn Kohick on this. Okay, we're going to talk about her work here in particular. She says, and I quote, the Greek term used for head is kephale, which typically refers to the physical head resting on the neck. And I showed some of this quote earlier, but we'll read more of it. In Hebrew, Latin, and English, head can be used metaphorically to indicate leader. It is difficult to make the case that it refers to leader in Greek, for we have almost no evidence of this. Then she says this, and this, this is the thing we're going to test. Lexicons in the 19th and 20th centuries suggested source as a possible meaning, metaphorical meaning, but not leader. I have no evidence that head means leader in Greek, and... There's And lexicons in the 19th and 20th century support source, but not leader. So I have access to a bunch of lexicons. And I thought, that sounds like a super strong claim, right? The point is that modern scholarly work shows that this word means source and does not carry the connotation of leader. Now, in spite of everything we've already done in the video, you're like, wait a minute, Mike. Like, How is it? That doesn't make sense. And it, I, I agree with you. It doesn't make sense. So is this true? I don't know what lexicon she was talking about. She did not reference a bunch of lexicons from the 19th and 20th century. But I looked at a bunch from the 19th and 20th century. So I surveyed a ton of lexicons, and we're going to go through them right now because I got nothing better to do today with my time than to go through a whole bunch of lexicons, tell you exactly what year they were printed, and tell you what they said about whether head kephale means source or authority or both or neither. So the first one is probably the most well-respected lexicon out there the BDAG that's based off of the names of the authors, but it's the Greek English lexicon of the New Testament. Everybody just calls it BDAG. Most recently, uh, the edition I have at least is from 2000, okay, from 2000. And it says that kephale, in the case of living beings, is used to denote superior rank. Superior rank. And then when you look at what they think that definition applies to, they specifically cite 1 Corinthians 11.3 11, and Ephesians 5.23, both about male headship in relation to their wives. 
So BDAG says it's about superior rank, specifically in the passages we're in today, and source is never given as a meaning in BDAG, and BDAG is considered the, the, the most respected New Testament lexicon there is. It, doesn't, it does not mention the word leader, so she's right about that. It doesn't say leader, but it does say superior rank, right? So obviously it means the same thing. Um, so it's just, we're just playing with words if we argue about that. Let's go to the next one. This is going to be the, um, well, I guess I can't put it on the screen for some reason it's not popping up, but the word study dictionary of the New Testament. And this is published in 1993. And um, yeah, I guess I didn't assign that button correctly. The, this particular resource says that it's metaphorically used of persons, the head, the chief, one to whom others are subordinate, the husband in relation to his wife, insofar as they are one body, and one body can have only one head to direct it. To what? To direct it. Of Christ in relation to his church, which is his body, and its members are his members. God the Father is designated as the head of Christ, generally of a leader or ruler. So specifically, this 1993 resource, is it says it's a leader or ruler and all these authoritative terms. No mention of the word source. Let's go to the next one. This is a uh, Launida, named after its author's uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, based on semantic domains. Actually, uh, that's volume two on your screen there. But at any rate, I have digital forms of most of these. Um, so this source says that Kephale is, quote, one who is of supreme or preeminent status in view of authority to order or command. Now, notice the word leader is not there, but it clearly means leader. Um, so it's specifically assigns this meaning that I just read, authority to command, to 1 Corinthians 11.3. So th this lexicon's thought is, hey, in this passage in the Bible, it means this in particular. No mention of the word source. Let's go to another one. The Lexham Theological Wordbook. This one, it says that by extension, the word can refer metaphorically to those who are of high status. Pretty stripped down definition there, um, but it, it's no mention of source. The word source is not there, but the status of the person, which would include authority, um, depending on the type of status they have. Let's go to the next one. This is the DBL, Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, published in 2001. It says that kephale is someone who is superior, one of preeminent status, figurative extension of first entry. Just reading to you what it says. And it specifically assigns that superior or preeminent status to the two passages, 1 Corinthians 11.3 and then Ephesians 4, verse 15. No mention of source as a definition. Let's go to the next one. In 1990, we saw the publishing, the most recent that I'm aware of, publishing of the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, the EDNT. This says that it refers to the hierarchy of God, Christ, man, woman. Specifically, the term hierarchy, which egalitarians will know, means authority. It's an interesting one because they define head in, in terms that includes authority, but goes on to argue exegetically, this is in, in this resource, they argue exegetically, not definitionally for the context, for a softening of that through Paul's later statement in 1 Corinthians 11. I don't follow their logic in the exegesis. I think they're doing the Bible study wrong. What's interesting is that their job is actually to give you the meaning of the word. They then do kind of a Bible study argument because they're pushing back against the meaning of the word. It's really interesting. You can check it out for yourself. They say in 523 also, where the dominance of the husband over the wife finds its analogy in the relationship of Christ and the church, kephale is intended to express sovereignty. So they do say that. A little confusing. No mention of source in this particular resource. Let's go to another one. This is the, 
I called it the GED, <laughs> the Greek English Dictionary of the New Testament. Um, they say that it means Lord, head of head of superior rank, etc. No mention of source as a meaning. Let's go to another one. This is, and that was published in 93. The LEH, Greek English Lexicon of the Septuagint, which focuses on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 2003 published time. It says head of men and animals. It can mean leader and there's no mention of source. There's a little bit more details in my notes if you guys want more, but note this is only a lexicon for the Septuagint, right? For the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it does support leader as possible and does not mention source. So that's just important to acknowledge if we're gonna survey lexicons like Linkoic suggested. Um, the NASB concordance, it says, um, the entire entry actually is really short. It says chief, hair, head, Heads vary. Okay, so obviously it would mean chief because that's the only one that's going to be um, applicable to the passages. The only possible meaning would be chief, which means you're in charge. Okay, so there's no mention of source in that one either. Then we get to the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament published in 2000. This one says that head is, when used of persons, designating first or superior rank. Then it references 1 Corinthians 11.3, one of the verses that says a husband's the head of his wife or a man head of the woman. Then we have the pocket New Testament, pocket lexicons in the New Testament Greek. The full entry here is that kephale, this is 1917 now, is um, head, uh, cornerstone, uniting two walls and parallels. And then you finally get to a metaphorical meaning that could apply to our issues, head, ruler, or lord. And it references 1 Corinthians 11.3. No mention of source. No mention of source. None of them have so far. So... What's the next one? Enhanced Strong's lexicon. Metaphorically, they say it can mean anything supreme, chief, or prominent. Of persons, it can mean a master, lord, of a husband in relation to his wife. Of Christ, the lord of the husband and of the church. Of things, a cornerstone. No mention of source. Then, and that was 1995. Then we have the LSJ, and this one becomes super important. We're going to have a whole little thing on this later. You will find very interesting. Uh, I know you will, because it's, it's like, it's a little bit dramatic. <laughs> plot twists and turns and interesting things. All right, so um, the LSJ says that source is a possible meaning. This is 1996, the most recent uh, supplement or edition that I'm aware of. That it, it could also mean of no, uh, the noblest part. So source is a possible meaning in reference to rivers, and then it can also mean noblest part. No mention of specific Bible verses are given. The LSJ does not deal with any scripture specific passages in its examination here. Um, I will talk more about this in a bit. So there's one. There's one that says source could be a meaning. Doesn't assign it to the New Testament, though. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, a rather exhaustive resource, in 1964, the version I've got, um, they say, let me just read this to you. It says, but this leads us already to the second aspect, not merely what is first or supreme at the beginning or the end, but also what is prominent, outstanding, or determinative. Thus, man's head is not just one member among others. It is also the first and the chief member which determines all the others. They also go on, because the TDNT has long articles, they go on to say that source is acknowledged as it relates to a river, though subjection to the head is strongly included in its meaning when it's used of other things. So here's our first clue where source comes from. It's, it's, there's an ancient reference where a river is said to have a kephale, and it's talking about the source. But what we'll find out later is that river 
the word kephale in plural is also used, uh, plural of the source and singular of the mouth of the river. So it doesn't even mean source there, it really means extremity, and that's probably an error in the lexicons. I know that sounds arrogant of me to say that. I'm not saying that, it's like the research of others that I'm just summarizing for you. Okay, let's go to the next one, and we're getting close. This is the last one. The Intermediate Greek English Lexicon, 1888. So she said 19th and 20th century lexicon supported her view. I looked at every one I had access to, and only one supported her view. Not, I'll give you the summary in a minute. Okay, so in 1888, you get this one. It supports source in a literal sense as that of a river. It supports the following metaphorical meanings, and we know Paul was using it metaphorically. The crown, completion of a thing, the life, the whole person. And none of those work for Paul. None of the meanings on offer work for Paul. This lexicon doesn't mention any specific New Testament uses of kephale. Right? It, it, it doesn't focus on the, the biblical... Greek, and so it may not actually be that helpful. So it seems like the least helpful lexicons are the ones that the Galatians have to lean on. So here's my conclusion. I surveyed 15 lexicons. Three mentioned sources of possible meaning, but it's not that simple. Of those three, none of them assigned that meaning to any New Testament passage. So there's no commentary from them about that. Two of the three don't offer any specific New Testament meanings of kephale at all, meaning that the two of the three aren't even focused on New Testament uses of the word. Two of the three only take source as a literal meaning in reference to a river, not as a metaphorical meaning. Specifically, they rule that out. If it's metaphorical, it doesn't mean source. So now we've only got one left that actually could support their view. And we're going to talk a lot about that one, the LSJ. One of the three, the, the TDNT, still sees authority in leadership implied even if other meanings are taken. And this is the only one that references New Testament. So the only one of the three that actually talks about the New Testament at all. It's like, yeah, it could mean source. But when it's talking about it in the New Testament, it definitely includes authority. This is what the lexicons are telling us. Where's the battle? <laughs> um, well, you're about to find out. So source seems incredibly unlikely in all but one lexicon, and that one seems obviously lacking in scope. Even if source is implied, leadership is likely implied as well. That seems overwhelmingly the treatment of lexicons, and this is important. This is important. So an assumption of the this, not that thing, that if it means source, it doesn't mean leader, is really what this is all based on, which would, is also not true. Uh, many that don't mention the word leader still support it with other terms, like chief, subordinate authority, superior, sovereignty, lord, ruler, master. So focusing on leader is also misleading. So Lynn Kohick's um, summary seems really problematic. Then how does she say, how does she say, and I quote her again, ancient lexicons do not define kephale as authority or leader. Why, why does she say this? When actually a lot do. And this comes back to the work of a guy named Richard Servan. These are like the thought leaders, okay? When you read egalitarians, they're all going to quote Servan. They're all going to be going back to Servan. Servan says, Servan did a thing on this, and Servan's stuff is not helping the way that they think it is, I don't, in my opinion. So she quotes Richard Servan's article, Does Kephale Mean Source or Authority Over in Greek Literature, a rebuttal. And he's specifically rebutting Wayne Grudem, interestingly. They went back and forth. Um, but I think Grudem won. <laughs> so um, Servan refuses to analyze. Here, here's some problems with this paper. He analyzes all these ancient lexicons, but he refuses. He will not analyze any New Testament examples of Kephale. So he's going to try to think, He's okay, his paper's being used to weigh in on what Paul meant by Kephale. He never even looks at Paul. He never reads or quotes or uses or analyzes New Testament uses. 
But that's the point of the paper in the end, is it's used to talk about the New Testament use. He rejects, in addition, all New Testament lexicons, most of the ones that I quoted to you. He rejects them all. Now, a New Testament lexicon is not a Christian lexicon. What it is, is it's a lexicon that focuses on Greek and its use in the New Testament. This is a specialty lexicon. This is like, say, if you get a lexicon, it focuses on how Plato or Philo used Greek. That means it's going to be actually better for when you understand Philo. You want someone who's like, how did Philo use Kephale? That's what I want to know if I'm reading Philo. How does the New Testament use? But he refuses to use any of them, and he gives you reasons in his paper why. Let me summarize them. Maybe they're influenced by a patriarchal culture. Maybe they can't tell what Greek means here because he supposes they're just bad at their job. He accuses them of not reading extra-biblical sources like Plato, Herod Herodotus, or Plutarch. But they do. Like BDAG, gold standard, BDAG quotes Plato, Herodotus, Plutarch all the time. It reference. So th this is weird. What he's done is he's taken all of the most relevant lexicons and he's thrown them out and says none of them apply. So that when someone like Linkoic says, if I summarize lexicons... What the subtext behind there is after throwing out all of the most relevant lexicons, it's just, it's misleading. So Servan only uses lexicons for specific authors. Now, now things get really weird. If you're going to get rid of all the best lexicons, what are you going to replace them with? He uses lexicons that do word studies for specific authors. He'll look at how Plato used the word or Herodotus used the word. Now, the weakness of this is, is amazing to me to think about. I'm going to throw out all the New Testament lexicons that specialize in New Testament Greek. I'm going to focus instead on how Plato used it. A lexicon that's on Plato, a lexicon in Herodotus. The weakness of this is you're throwing out the best ones, and then you're using specialized works that are based on other people's uses, usage of the word. Wayne Grudem rightly says about him, why is a lexicon on Plato or Thucydides given more credence than a specialty lexicon on the New Testament period? Finally, Servan doesn't tell his readers the following. I'll put a chart up for you. This is where Servan gets his Greek from. This is, this is the people he's like, when they use kephale, it probably just means something other than authority, right? He doesn't, he doesn't conclude it means source, but it's not really exactly meaning authority. Well, look at his conclusion, though, and his conclusion supports complementarians. It's the, it's the craziest thing in the world. I feel like it's like some kind of like this like cheesy drama TV show. <laughs> so here's the, here's the ones he uses. Notice the times. They're very old. They're all before the closest one is Diodorus, who is like first century BC. Um, then you've got one third century AD. You have nothing from the exact time of Christ. You don't have any writers who are writing during, like say Philo, who's actually writing around the time of Paul, around the time of Jesus. Servan doesn't tell his readers that his lexicons are mostly from time way before the New Testament authors or after, but not during. Now, Greek changes over time. There's ancient Greek and there's classical Greek. Koine Greek is not ancient Greek. There's connections, but they're not the same. And a lot of this, the guys, most of the ones on Servan's list are writing in a different kind of Greek. And he's using them, them as his resource. So his, his whole study is like compromised in severe ways. Servan concludes, and he, his conclusion, this is the final thing. His conclusion hurts the egalitarians. It doesn't help them. They quote Servan all the time, but they don't quote this part of him. He concludes at the end of his paper, he says, what then does Paul mean by his use of head in his letters? He does not mean authority over, as the traditionalists assert, nor does he mean source, as the egalitarians assert. So he rejects both views. So then what does servant think? He says it means, and here's where like my brain just melts and falls out of my ears, 
He says it means preeminence. And I quote Servin to you now. I promise to read it for yourself. I got a link below to his paper. You can read it for free. How can the husband be preeminent over his wife in the context of the male-dominant culture in which Paul was a part? Such a usage would not be inappropriate. So he says it doesn't mean authority over. It doesn't mean source. It means preeminence. And how could a husband be preeminent over his wife? Through male domination. Servant concludes that it's a husband being in charge. And that's what it means when Paul writes it. Yet, what, what is going on between the scholars and the people? There's all these distortions that happen, then it gets to you guys. And you read egalitarian, forgive me, look, you, if you read egalitarian sources on this stuff, you will get distorted reality about these facts. And they'll quote Servant, and it's like, and it's there's a million problems with it. Now, Wayne Grudem did a, an article in 1990 responding to this, and I've got links below to his articles. Wayne Grudem's article was fantastic. He's got, I've got several articles linked below for his stuff, and I thought he did a great job, very well done. He tackles their objections, and he answers them well. So this whole thing tends to center around, finally, 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 we get to it, the LSJ. And here's where the drama gets, gets thick, okay? So the LSJ, um, let me show it to you again is a very highly regarded resource, okay? This is a very respected resource. It's not problematic. It's got, every resource has some problems, right? But it's not like that. So the first thing to note, though, is the LSJ is is, is not focused on biblical Greek, right? So it's focused on ancient Greek, which is older than biblical Greek. Now, it includes biblical Greek. It goes all the way to the, to the 6th century AD in its analysis of Greek. But its emphasis is from the 8th to 4th century BC. Its emphasis is older. That's what it's more interested in. And that's where it's leaning a little heavily. In particular, the article on Kephale is all about that earlier time and not about the later times. So it has less applicability to New Testament studies. So, for clarity, right? They cover from the 8th century BC to the 6th century AD, but it emphasizes that classical period, that classical period of Greek. And in the entry on Kephale, notice this, the LSJ, which is the only one that, that, that seems to provide source as it's the only source for source for the best source for source that for the egalitarians um, in that entry, it doesn't mention any new Testament examples because it doesn't appear to be examining them here. It particularly ignores the new Testament context. We're interested in if we want to understand how Paul uses the words, other lexicons like BDAG specialize in new Testament Greek and they should be appealed to, but egalitarians use LSJ because it's the only one they got. Uh, in my opinion, it's the only one that they got that's going to help them out. Um, let me give you some more quotes for how they use it, and then we'll, then we'll explain the drama. Okay, so in their Greek-English lexicon, here we have a, <clears throat> a quote from uh, Rebecca Grotheis. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott do not include the def in the definition of kephale any meaning that expresses authority or superior, superior rank. Now, the implication for normal people, now scholars can go, well, technically that's accurate, but normal people read this and they think, oh, so, it, so kephale doesn't mean authority or rank. Like, there's, there's no authority there. Another quote. This one is from Lynn Kohick in Discovering Biblical Equality. She says, The 1843 edition of the Liddell and Scott lexicon included over 25 entries under Kephale, including the metaphorical meaning source, but no entry referring to leader or authority over. The ninth edition uh, published in 96, likewise does not, and it just goes on, it does the same thing. Um, maybe I should move that up. I can't move that up. 
Um, I guess that's as far as I need to go. All right, so let me, after sharing that with you, th this, is, this is what you'll get. You'll go, oh, well, this LSJ is better. LSJ is better. We should listen to the LSJ. So in Wayne Grudem wrote a paper in 1990 where it was called The Meaning of Kefale, A Response to Recent Studies. Really well done paper. He responds specifically to like Servin and others. Um, I think Linda Belleville he might be responding to in there. And it's a good summary from Grudem uh, of those issues. There's another paper I've linked below where he gives a summary of 30 years of debate on this exact meaning of this exact word. But let me go through his comments. Number one, he criticizes the LSJ for the following reasons and they seem very legit. The LSJ uses source, not in a metaphorical sense, as was implied by Lynn Kohick. If I put her quote back up, you could see. Um, you, 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 there it is. So she says it's metaphorically means source, but that's not right. The LSJ uses a literal meaning of source as in the source of a river. So it's not metaphorical. That's inaccurate. Well, that already rules it out for Paul because he's not using a metaphorical meaning. Number two, when in the only resource they have in ancient writing that mentions a source of a river as kephale, it's actually plural. It's kephale, but it's plural. And it refers to sources, plural. Then it refers to the mouth of the river in, in, in ancient Greek as well. And it calls it kephale, the mouth of the river. And Wayne Grudem rightly observes, there's a definition for kephale already on the books called extremity or, you know, most extreme part. And that's probably how it's being used there. It doesn't mean source here. It just means most extreme part. So this seems to be an inaccurate meaning. I, I would agree with him. I don't think source seems to be in the meaning of kephale, even though a lot of people are convinced it is. And my, my case is not based on that. But at least when it refers to the river, um, when it's plural, it's source. When it's singular, it's mouth. And so if kephale is meant to be applying like the LSJ does to a river, then it's saying that the husband is the mouth of the wife, where she flows out of, like a river flowing out. Like, what does that mean? It's weird. Um, he also says the LSJ is misleading. This is a big claim and should be revised. But he gives a ton of Greek examples of the word meaning authority and carrying that connotation both in, in you know more classical Greek and Koine Greek in these different different time periods of Greek. In addition, the LSJ never applies the source meaning to kephale when it's used specifically of persons. There's no example even in the LSJ of a person being called a source of something else. Now, here's where the drama comes down. So the LSJ is a super old resource. And what they do with this old resource is they hire editors, these brilliant, really well-educated and highly respected scholars, who they create supplements. They, they make changes. You know, there's new research, new papyri discovered. They see the word being used in new contexts. And then they go and they change the meanings and the definitions of a word. And so the guy doing that right now is a guy named Peter Glare. Hard to find a, a photo of Peter Glare online. <laughs> um, now, Peter Glare read, he's the guy who does the update for the LSJ. Um, this guy is the guy in charge of the LSJ right now, right? And, and he knows his stuff. He's extremely highly regarded, very respected worldwide for his, for his work. He read Grudem's paper saying how the LSJ had all these real problems with how it defines kephale. And he responded in a paper, in, in, a, in a letter that he wrote to Wayne Grudem and he gave him permission to publish it. And so this is that letter from the editor of the LSJ, the guy who does the supplements, here's what he says about the meaning of kephale in the LSJ. The only, the single, you know, hammer that that the egalitarians have in this in this uh, lexicon debate. I'll read it to you. I know it's small, but I'll read it all to you. Dear Professor Grudem, thank you for sending me the copy of your article on kephale. The entry 
in under this word in LSJ is not very satisfactory. Now I've I've bolded and underlined a couple things here for you guys. Perhaps I could draw your attention to a section of Lexicographa Greci by Dr. John Chadwick. Though he does not deal in detail with the Septuagint and New Testament material, I was unable to revise the longer articles in the LSJ when I was preparing the latest supplement. Since I did not have the financial resources to carry out a full-scale revision, I have no time at the moment to discuss all your examples individually, and in any case, I am in broad agreement with your conclusions. I might just make one or two generalizations. So here's what he says about kephale. Kephale is the word normally used to translate the Hebrew var, and this does, see, does seem frequently to denote leader or chief without much reference to the original anatomical sense. And here it seems perverse to deny authority. The supposed sense source, of course, does not exist. Let me read that again. The supposed sense source, of course, does not exist. And it was at least unwise of Liddell and Scott to mention the word. At the most, they should have said, applied to the source of a river in respect of its position in, its, the, in the river's course. So it's the extremity. Uh, by New Testament times, the Septuagint had, uh, make sure I'm keeping the page consistent here. Okay. The, by New Testament times, the Septuagint had been well established, and one would only expect that a usage found frequently in it would come easily to such a writer as St. Paul. Where I would agree with Servant is that in many of the examples, and I think all the Plutarch ones, we are dealing with, a, with similes or comparisons, and the word itself is used in a literal sense. Right, but service talking about other people and how they use it, not Paul. Here we, are, <clears throat> here we are faced with the inadequacies of the LSJ. If they had clearly distinguished between, for example, the head as the seat of the intellect and emotions, and therefore the director of the body's actions, and the head as the extremity of the human body or animal, and so on, these figurative examples would naturally be attached to the end of the section they belong to, and the author's intent would be clear. I hasten to add, that in most cases, the sense of the head as being the controlling agent is the one required, and that the idea of preeminence seems to me to be quite unsuitable. That's Servant's idea of preeminence. He tried to kind of reduce it, but he goes, no, that seems unsuitable to me. And that there are still cases where kephale can be understood as in the Septuagint, as in its transferred sense of head or leader. Once again, thank you for sending me the article. I shall file it in the hope that one day we will be able to embark on a more thorough revision of the lexicon. Yours sincerely, Peter Glare. Now, Wayne Grudem commented on this, and his comment is a great summary. He says, This must be counted a significant statement because it comes from someone who, because of his position and scholarly reputation, could rightly be called the preeminent Greek lexicographer in the world. Period. Egalitarians, you failed. <laughs> it's like, you guys have failed. And this is, this is, like, I really think they need to go and rewrite their books and, and, and examine these things more carefully. Servant stuff is really sketchy. The way he throws out New Testament lexicons, quotes other ones, and then even then doesn't, doesn't arrive at the right conclusion for the egalitarian side because he still ends up with this sort of male patriarchy thing that they, that they want to reject, at least in some sense. I think there's a biblical view of that that is much godlier and holier and wholesome and loving than what the world typically thinks of with those words. But... Um, Egalitarian claims about ancient language and history have often been, I've found, have often been false or distortions. And we look to scholars to help us with facts, not to obscure facts. But it's so 
often misleading that I've begun to think that egalitarian claims are being propped up. The foundation of the movement are being is being propped up with misinformation that comes with the appearance of appearance of insight from scholars, but it's not really there. So we have two things. We have what I will call unsuccessful scholarship, and then we have the demonization of the other side. That's what the first video in this series has been about, was like, when you bypass the Bible and you just go, look, I'm just gonna make sure that you know if you have this view, this complementarian or patriarchal view, it's evil, wrong, bad, horrible, hurts people, you should be ashamed, you need to repent. That is more often the, the thing that gets hammered and then the scholarship is there to prop it up, but both, I think on both points, it ends up failing. So this is why pretty much every single translation agrees. Like I examined a bunch of different translations, 26 of them on your screen here. They all translate head as something like either head or supreme or authority. I can only find one translation that translated the word head with the word source. I surveyed 27, I don't know how many, maybe, maybe I did more. I looked all over for translation that defines source instead of head, and I found one. Would you, would you like to know? Hold on, let me put this. I found one, the Passion Translation, <laughs> which is uh, clearly the author, Brian Simmons, who made this unfortunate translation is, wants to push egalitarian views. That's, so he made his translation say source, but this is only in the 2017 version. Since then, the update, the 2020 or 2021 update, they've changed it and they changed it over to head. And so it no longer says source because he, he was getting so much pushback that um, he's trying to like rescue the translation by, by fixing pieces of it, but not actually fixing it. Um, can't be fixed. So conclusions, here are my conclusions for today. And then I'll tell you what I'm doing next time in this series on women in ministry. I, I would love your guys' feedback. I hope this is super fruitful for you. Um, I don't wanna make you suspicious of scholarship in general, but I want you to be able to approach scholars with enough, enough um, maturity to recognize that they're the same mixed bag of good and bad information that the rest of us are. That's how it is. Scholar doesn't mean trustworthy. It means specialist. It just means they specialize in that area. Whether they're trustworthy or not depends. Um, so here's conclusions. Number one, common medical thought in the New Testament times supports head as implying authority or the one that's in control, the boss. Number two, Paul's metaphorical and contextual use of head in relation to the both Jesus and husbands implies authority very clearly. So the Bible study part supports the idea that husband's the head of his wife, meaning there's a, there's a, there's a realm of authority that's there. Not that she has no authority, not that she is to be abused, not that not all the other silliness, but it does imply that. Number three, church history totally supports headship implying authority and quotes from Chrysostom taken out of context don't change that. Church history is not the winning, isn't, isn't the death blow to the discussion, but it's interesting that it supports one side very, very heavily. Number four, a lexical study of kephale. When you look at the Greek very deeply, it super strongly supports that it implies authority. Kephale implies authority. And number five, one of the biggest takeaways from this whole series is that egalitarian claims are often very problematic. I wanted to be egalitarian going into this. Now, that doesn't mean that I am there, therefore unbiased. Um, but I'm saying that I very slowly, well, here's what happened. I went in, I read egalitarian claims, and I started with all their works. Man, yeah, that's really giving me pause. They're really putting me a little bit on the fence here. Like, I, I'm gonna I have to really check into this stuff in detail, but if they're right, 
I mean, that seems a little bit sketchy, but maybe not. I mean, if they're right, and like, and so here's me, I'm really willing to switch, switch over. <laughs> okay, let me double check all their claims. Now it's time to go to the footnotes. Now it's time to, oh no. And then you start to feel almost this sense of what other people have gone through and how many of them didn't check the footnotes and check the claims and they've swung over and they've become egalitarian because of bad information. One of my most requested videos ever, which is head coverings. A thorough examination of 1 Corinthians 11. What is it talking about? What are the head coverings? How does it apply today? And is am I being consistent in my interpretation of scripture on how I apply that? <sighs> okay, this was, I can't tell you how much time this took to prepare over the months and months, but I'm so happy to put it out there and get this information out there. I hope you find it useful. Anyone with pushback, now's the time to present it, but it better be good because I put a lot of work into it. I like to see serious pushback. And if I'm wrong, I will happily, if I can see I'm wrong, I'll happily come out and recant and change and clip pieces out of a video and make a video telling everybody. Um, that'd be fine. But I, I like to go ahead and close in prayer with you guys. So Lord, we um, we trust you. This, this is the, the starting point of this whole series is that we trust you. When it comes to how we are to be in our marriages, how we are to be in our churches, the roles of men and women, we trust you above all else. And whatever you tell us in this regard, we want to honor that. And if that meant that um, women should be in leadership, then we want to honor that and we want to push for that. And if it means that they should not be in at least cer certain roles of leadership, then we want to push that for that as well and honor you there. We submit to you, God. Your, you know, submission is, is at the core of our following of Christ. And we just want to follow what you say. We pray for clarity and wisdom, Lord. Help us sift through what our culture has told us, what we may have heard from our churches around us, and what your word has forever said about these issues. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all.